Last week, uh, we looked at how Ruth went to talk to Boaz, and he said that he would do what he could do to be the redeemer, and that's kind of where we're going to pick the story up. So we're in Ruth 4, 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know and there is no one besides you to redeem it, for there is no one beside you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, oh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, so I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, and then Boaz said to the elders of all the people who were witnesses this day, that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, um, also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks, Vicki. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, we are definitely having issues this morning. Things are falling down when they're not supposed to and not turning on when they're supposed to. But uh, life is like that, isn't it? And so churches too. Uh, and be, be reminded that as we continue in the book of Ruth this morning, um, this has been great, I think, so timely for us as a church and for us as a people living in the country that we live in, where in many ways today, it, these days feel much like the days of the judges in which this book takes place, probably felt to the people of Israel, chaotic times full of political uncertainty and unrest and ruthlessness and, and other such things. And the message of the book to us and to the people that it was written to then, but even to us today, is that when you find yourself in a time like that, the thing you do is you put yourself to the work of love. And it's a good reminder for us, I think, that what Christianity really is, as it boils down uh, to its very essence, is uh, that God desires to make us people who love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and who love one another as we love ourselves. The Bible is very clear that you can be a talented person, but if you're not a loving person, then your talent really doesn't count for anything. You can be successful, but if that success doesn't uh, allow you to do the hard work of love, then what good is it? That what we are to be uh, as a people more than anything else is a people who excel in the work of love. And what we strive for as a church, 
uh, to be honest with you, we can have great music and fancy programs and all of these kinds of things, but if we didn't love one another well, if we didn't love our city well, what's the point? And so of all the things that we are striving to be at this church, uh, it is to be a people who really do understand the implications and have the tools that we need to, to love one another well and to love the city that God's called us to well. And so that's what we've been looking at here in Ruth. And, and we come this morning to this fourth chapter. We're almost done. Next week will be our last week in this book, and then we'll begin a summer series. Uh, incidentally, many of you have asked, and I know there's still a little confusion. Next week will be my last week uh, before I go on sabbatical this summer. And I just wanted to say thank you for all the support that you've shown to us. Everybody's enthusiastic. I've not heard really a negative thing about that, and I'm grateful because uh, that's not usual. And so uh, you, are, you proved to love my family well uh, again, so thank you. So next week will be it, but this week we kind of begin to wrap things up. We come here to this fourth chapter, and uh, if you paid attention as Vicky was reading there, you'll, you'll see that there's a word that continues to come up over and over again. And I think we've talked about this. We've tried to train you that when you're reading the Bible and you're in a passage like this, 12 verses, and you, just, you, you find yourself, there's, there's a particular phrase or an idea or a word even that continues to pop up over and over again that it really is a clue by the writer that that really is the theme of what he's trying to say here. And the word here in Ruth 4 is the word redeem. I counted 12 times uh, in the passage, redeem, redeemer, redemption, all these various um, forms of this one word. Now, of course, redeem, redemption, redeemer is an important biblical concept. God is a redeemer, hence the name of our church. But what does the Bible mean by the word? What is the theological concept here? How does Boaz's redemption of Naomi and Ruth here in chapter 4 teach us about what it means for God to redeem us? Because the Bible says that when, he, when God saves his people, it's an act of redemption. What does that mean? Well, that's what we need to talk about this morning. B.B. Warfield, the old Princeton theologian, wrote an article about the word redeem in the scripture. And he was lamenting the death of, of the word uh, over a hundred years ago, I mean, at the turn of the 20th century, he was saying he was saying we've really uh, lost the idea of what this word, this rich biblical word, redeem means. And I love the way he put it. These are his words. He says the religious terrain. And again, if this was true a hundred years ago, can you imagine how true it is today? He said the religious terrain is full of the graves of good words which have died from lack of care. But the dying of words is not the saddest thing. The saddest thing is the dying out of the hearts of men of the things for which the words stand. And he, what he means, he, he, he's encouraging us to do theology. And theology is a matter of words and phrases that convey eternal truths. Words matter in Christianity because Christianity is not a moral code. Uh, it, it, it is a message. It is gospel. And with gospel, words really matter. And redeem is one of those words. It's one of those words that's meant to come into our hearts and affect us a certain way, even by the hearing of it. But the problem is when we lose, when, when the word dies, then, then, then what is meant to happen in our hearts at the mention of the word dies too. And so we need to get it right. We need to get this idea of redemption right. And thankfully we have this text in front of us so that we can, that we can see what it has to teach us. So Ruth 4 teaches us uh, about redemption in three ways. It shows us first... In the characterization, yet again, of Naomi and Ruth, our need for redemption. Secondly, it illustrates for us the cost of redemption, and Boaz is uh, paying the price. And thirdly, 
the result of redemption. Or if you want to put it this way, you'll see those are the, the points in the outline that I've given you. The, it's, the text really shows us the why, the how, and the what now. The why, the how, and the what now when it comes to this biblical concept of redemption. So we're gonna just going to walk through the text together looking at uh, those three things. So let's start, okay, first uh, with the need, the need for redemption. What does the word redeem mean if it's so important? What does the Bible mean to teach us by this word? And why, why does it say that we need to be redeemed? And we have to understand, yet again, the context of the story unfolding here in Ruth in order to understand uh, the meaning behind the word. In Israelite society, each family was given a certain allotment of land. The land that God had promised, right? God had, God had given Israel this certain, uh, this certain geographical area, but inside of that geographical area, each clan, each tribe got its allotment, then each clan, and then literally each family had a little piece, a little acreage, so to speak. And the, the reason was because the land was their livelihood. It was the way they produced an income. So every, again, every family had its own allotment of land. In an agrarian society like ancient Israel, to be without land was literally to be without any means of providing for yourself. It was there, you, you had no way of producing an income for yourself. And so, of course, as it goes in life, a family might experience some kind of hardship. There might be, for example, the death of the male leader of the family, the father or the eldest brother or whoever it might be, or some kind of natural disaster or just a poor crop, whatever the case might be that would create economic disaster or distress for the family. And the only solution when a family experienced something like that was to sell part or all of the land to someone else and then to hire themselves out. The Bible talks as a slave or as an indentured hired servant to the person who was, who was buying their land. Now you can imagine what this would do. It would create cycles of poverty that sometimes lasted for generations. Now, God is a good and faithful, gracious God. And so in his law, he provided for these types of, of situations. Leviticus 25, 25 through 28, for example, you come across the very concept that is being illustrated for us here in Ruth chapter 4. God says, because this is going to happen sometimes, uh, and, and families could go into generational poverty, and we don't want that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow for this thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, more than that, I'm going to command uh, a, certain, a certain concept. It's called the Redeemer. And the Redeemer was a close relative, a brother, an uncle, or a cousin, who, unlike the family, was related to the family, but when they went through a hard time, he had gone through a good time, and so he was charged by God to use the wealth that God had given to him to restore the family's fortunes. He would do this by using his wealth and influence to either, a couple of things, to either first buy the family out of slavery if they had had to enslave themselves, put themselves in indentured service to someone else, he would buy them out. That was called, that buying of them back out of slavery was called redemption. Or he would, um, he would buy back the land that had been sold from the creditor and then give it back to the family so that they could be reestablished and, and have a way of providing for themselves yet again. Now, Boaz... Boaz was a redeemer. The Hebrew word is goel. I love that word, right? Goel. That's just a great, I don't know. It sounds like something from the Lord of the Rings, I guess. Maybe that's why I like it so much. A goel. A, it literally meant a protector. He, he owned, the goel would own the financial ruin of the family. And 
Boaz owned the financial ruin of Naomi and Ruth, and he used his wealth and he used his influence and his position to buy back, literally, buy back Naomi and Ruth. And that's what the word redeem means. It means to buy back. To, to buy back something from slavery, so to speak. So you see some applications. We're going to do a lot of applying because I think there's so, many, uh, there's so many applications that we can make here in the text. And I want you to see, for the one thing, family obligations in this whole system that I'm trying to describe to you, family obligations took precedent over per- personal wealth and ambition. A right, right relationship with Yahweh showed itself in love and sacrifice for others. And it's everywhere in, in the scriptures. It's everywhere in God's law, believe it or not. So we've said, uh, we've said this, but it merits being said again, that faith is a vertical reality with horizontal aspect. And the two are always connected. What you believe determines the way that you live. The way that you live and the way that you love and the way that you relate to people really shows what, at the heart what it is that you really believe in your relationship with God. And so we are to own one another's physical and spiritual brokenness. In the church... You're not allowed to look and see someone else struggling and feel sorry for them, but not bear any of their burden. You hear that? Now, a church gets too big, but at some level in the church, when people, are, when people are struggling, there needs to be some place in the church where you have the responsibility of some group of people that when they're going through a hard time, you don't get a pass by just looking at them and saying, man, isn't that, I'll pray for you. And not practically bearing part of their burden. Paul writes this, listen to this, in 1 Corinthians 12, when one part suffers, every part suffers with it. That's what he says of the church. Your problem is my problem. My problems are your problems. We get dragged into one another's suffering. Because, as Ecclesiastes says, two are always better than one. If one falls, the other can lift them up. But woe, listen to this, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Imagine a community where you're never in trouble and all alone. Think about that. Imagine belonging to a group where you're, I mean, you can't avoid trouble, but when trouble comes, you're never alone. There are people there to bear the burden, to bear the weight of that with you. That's, what it, that's the way it was to be in Israel. That's always the way it's supposed to be among God's people. It's the way it should be in the church, too. We meet one another in our brokenness. But here's the thing, not to condemn or to cast judgment, not to sigh in exasperation, but we are meant by God to meet one another in places of deep brokenness to redeem. And to redeem means to pay the price of someone else's brokenness yourself. To pay the price of someone else's brokenness yourself and through your love and your sacrifice and your generosity to make them whole again. So here's my question. Do you have a Goel? Do you have someone that you know? You know that if you got into trouble, they'd be there to bail you out no matter what. Do you have somebody like that? Let me ask this. Are you a Goel? Have you committed yourself to anybody that way? I think the scripture would call us to do that very thing and so we do this for one another uh, and we see Boaz doing this here for Naomi and Ruth and we do it for one another because uh, we're, we're this, this whole idea of the way we do this is patterned after the way God is related to us as his people God is a goel in the Old Testament scriptures God is described again and again as a redeemer buying back Israel from 
slavery in Egypt and restoring them to the land that he promised Abraham. Think about that. The, the salvation of God's people in the New Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament, excuse me, is always described as the Exodus event where God restored, he, he bought them out of slavery in Egypt and restored them to the land. It's the very thing that, that, that Boaz is doing for Naomi and Ruth here. And in the New Testament, there are echoes of this. It, the New Testament uses the word to describe our salvation. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give him his life as a ransom for many. It's that same word. Christ redeemed us, Paul says in Galatians 3, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so the use of the word redeem, or really a better word, ransom, because the two are really the same idea, it means that our sin, the trouble in our lives, what we call sin, is more than just guilt. There's something more we're dealing with here as a people who have been taken you know, captive by sin. It's not just that we stand before God guilty. Of course it is that, but it's far more than that. Sin doesn't just carry the idea of guilt with it. Sin carries the idea of slavery with it. We're not just guilty. We're slaves. Humanity is being held captive by evil. And there's a ransom that must be paid to set us free. Our problem is not that we just do bad things. If you're not in Christ, you're under the dominion of sin. That's what the Bible says. You're not just guilty of sin. You're a slave to sin. So the problem is not that you just do bad things. It's that even when you want to do good things, you can't find the power and the wherewithal to do the good you know you should do. There's a power at work that we feel powerless against at times. We're slaves to sin. It has us completely under its control outside of Christ. And that is that Galatians 3 passage, which is really important. It's why we, we made it a part of what we read this morning. That's the curse. As Paul calls it there in 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Let me explain. That is the condemnation of the law. In other words, never being able to reach the standards of God's law, always falling short and always feeling condemned as a result. So the problem is not that we do wrong things. It's worse than that. The problem is that we can't stop doing wrong things. Right? We tell ourselves, I hear it all the time, well, I could stop if I want to. But let's be honest, all addicts talk like that. And we're addicts. The law shows us right and wrong, but we keep doing the wrong that we don't want to do. And we can't seem to figure out how to do the right that we want to do. We, we, we should be honest. We should be honest. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should be honest with yourself. You are not free. If you're not in Christ, you're just as much a slave as Israel was in Egypt. We need a redeemer who can free us from not only the guilt of sin, but from its very power. And Jesus Christ is called Redeemer in the scriptures. And he has come not only to forgive us, but to free us from the destructive influence of sin in our lives. So in Galatians, if you keep reading there, which we, we, we read this past week, didn't we, in Galatians, that to be redeemed is to be free. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. And so there in Galatians 3, the freedom is explained in two words. Uh, if you look, it's the, it's the assurance of pardon. The two words that Paul highlights for us, he says that to be free means uh, these two things. It means blessing, not curse, and it means spirit, not the flesh. So the curse is the withering God-forsakenness that accompanies our lives when we are living apart from him. Blessing is the active, energizing presence of God 
all around you. Flesh is the principle of death that enslaves us to sin. The spirit is a new principle of life, a new power for obedience. And so what we learn there from Paul is that Jesus took our curse that we might have blessing. He endured God forsakenness that we might have God living inside of us. Redemption. Redemption. We, we, need, we need redemption. But secondly then, if we, like Naomi and Ruth in this text, in even greater measure, we need to be redeemed too. How? How does this happen then? How does God accomplish this? Or what is the cost of our redemption? There's a cost involved. Because if redemption, if redeem means to buy back, then of course there's an exchange. It's the language of commerce here, the commentators and the theologians say. We're in, we're in the realm of, of, this is the marketplace. Uh, there's, a, there's an exchange of money that's taking place, so to speak. And so in the article I mentioned earlier, B.B. Warfield distinguished the title Redeemer as giving expression to what it cost God to save us. That's really what's at the heart of that title. He says, it is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance. Not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. There's a price that had to be paid. And that's what's behind this word redeem. So the cost of redeeming was great. And you might imagine in Israel with this role that Boaz is playing, you, the role of Goel was not always coveted. You can imagine, right? And you see it, you see it in the text. Ruth asks Boaz to redeem her, verse 3, I mean chapter 3. But there was another relative, there was another redeemer. That's what's setting up this, this drama here, who had the right of first refusal. And this other redeemer, it's interesting, did you notice he goes unnamed in the text? Why do you think he goes unnamed in the text? It's the author's way of, 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 uh, of sliding him. He goes unnamed in the text because the author would have us frown at his selfishness. He was at first intrigued by the land. Boaz says there's land, you know, that, that, that uh, Elimelech owned, and somebody needs to buy the land. And his ears perk up, and he's, he's interested. He, wants, he wanted the land. But then Boaz uh, does something to him. He says, oh, yeah, by the way, if you're going to have the land, there's a Moabitess, Ruth, who comes with the land. Then he says, well, in that case, I'm out. Because in order to take possession of the land, he would have to marry Ruth and produce an heir from Elimelech. This is the way this works. And the piece of land would then eventually become the possession of Ruth's children and not his own children. And that would be, in his mind, a bad investment. So he's very clear, verse 6. He says, at first he says, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll redeem. That'd be great. I'd love to have that piece of land. But then he realizes that Ruth comes with it. He says, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. He's saying this, he's, he, he's realizing that he would have to take money out of his estate to buy the land that would then go to someone other than his own children. The land itself would have increased his wealth and position. The land with Ruth would decrease his wealth. It would impair his own inheritance. There was a cost, and he was unwilling to bear the cost. And that's why we don't know his name. But we do know Boaz's name. Because Boaz was glad to pay. Boaz, did you just get the sense, Vicky, I mean, you can just get the sense that Boaz is like on the tips. I mean, he just can't wait. He wants to get this guy out of the way as fast as he possibly can. He's doing everything he can to undermine this guy's purchase of them because he, he wants so badly not only the land, but Ruth too. And, and because of that, he is remembered to this day thousands of years later for his faithfulness and generosity. Don't underestimate 
the power of a small act of kindness. So let's do some application again. I got, I got quite a bit of application here. And I want you to see that there's a contrast uh, that we're meant to wrestle through. I said a couple of weeks ago, an unrighteous person advantages himself at the expense of the community. But a righteous person disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. The unnamed redeemer was unrighteous. He was only interested in what advantaged him. And as long as the deal was good for him, he was willing to listen. When it became bad for him, he walked away. Boaz was different. He was righteous. He was interested in love and faithfulness. He didn't really care about the bottom line. And so let me ask this question of you. When people are costly, when they are hard to love, what do you do? Think about your relationships. Are you only in it as long as you're, you're getting a good deal? That sounds gross, doesn't it? Don't run by that, though. Let's think about that a little bit. Are you only in it as long as you're getting a good deal? If so, that's consumerism. You see that? It's consumerism. But Hesed, what we've been talking about over and over again, the love that is be put on display here in Ruth is covenantal love. There is no cost-benefit analysis. You, you expect people to be costly. And so when they are, when they prove to be what you've known them to be from the beginning, it doesn't really phase you. It's part of the deal. Hesed is uneven love, we've said. You lose. You give away more than you gain. That's just what you expect. That's just the way you know it's going to go. And because it's just the shape of, of God's love for us and so our love for one another. So let me ask, do you expect people to be costly? Have you made peace with what it takes to love sinful people in a sinful world? Where I get tripped up, where I get tripped up all the time is when people prove to be sinful and I've forgotten to expect that they just be that. And I get tired. Why do you keep acting like this? And then I look at my, why do I keep acting like this? And I get exhausted of me. Anybody else get exhausted of themselves? That's good to know. I'm by myself in that. That's great. Thanks. I mean, I get exhausted of myself. And it's easy to get exhausted of other people, but a lot of times we get exhausted because we, we forget. We forget the work we're trying to do. We are, trying, we are setting ourselves to the work of loving sinful people in a sinful world. And so we keep getting surprised and disappointed when people turn out to be costly. But if, but if that's the case, and when it's the case for me, I'm not thinking Christianly. There are no shortcuts. But the second thing is, if I can apply this a little further, is that redemption, I said redemption and the idea of ransom is really, is really closely connected to one another, but the, but the idea of redemption and forgiveness are closely related too. Uh, because forgiveness is absolutely essential in relationships because we sin against one another all the time. So forgiveness is another one of those words, by the way, that's on the endangered list. We really, really need to, to recapture what the Bible means by it. It's so much more than we, than we really talk. And what the scripture means is that when we just go about life with one another, we're sinning against one another, and every time we sin against one another, it creates a debt. When you've been sinned against, you have two options. There, there's a debt that's owed to you, and, and two, you can make the person who hurt you pay the debt down, or you can pay it down yourself. And what I mean by that is you can, you can make the other person pay by remaining angry, by stewing privately, by taking opportunities to talk bad about them to other people. And every time that you think about them and you growl, you know, or every time you say something negative about them to somebody else, it's like a payment on the debt. You feel a little better, don't you? The pain's less. The, debt, the debt's being paid off. And that's the normal way of relationships. But listen, Christianity makes possible a completely different way of relating. 
That's what the Bible means by forgiveness. And, and forgive, forgiveness is this. When you forgive, you're acknowledging that there's pain. You're acknowledging that there's a debt. This person has wronged you. They owe you. They, they should be repaid for what they've done to you. They owe you. But what you choose to do is you choose to absorb the cost of their sin. You pay down the debt yourself by not treating them as their sins deserve. Every time you do that, every time you have an opportunity to complain to someone else that has hurt you, every time you have an opportunity to complain about someone who has hurt you to someone else and you don't do it, every time you could be cold and keep your distance, but you push in and you make yourself vulnerable, you make a payment on the debt. I mean, the debt is pain. It's emotional pain. We all know what this is. We feel it. And you can make sure the other person feels the pain or you can endure the pain yourself. Forgiveness is absorbing the pain. It's, pain. it's paying down the debt of the other person, just as Boaz did here for Ruth and Naomi. We, we talk, it's, it, this makes its way into our, uh, you've heard the terminology, to forgive a debt. It means somebody else pays. It, doesn't mean, it just doesn't go away. Someone has to pay. Don't you get a sense of how hard that is? Anybody else? Only Christianity can produce people like that. And the reason is that the gospel reveals how costly it was for God to love us. In order to redeem us, think about this. There was a price that had to be paid. And the price was Christ himself, or more specifically, as the scripture teaches, his death. Uh, so Paul writes, or excuse me, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. Now this begs the question, to whom was the redemption price paid? And the only answer, the answer the theological textbooks give is when it comes to our own redemption, that there was a price that had to be paid to God himself, whose holiness and justice had been offended by our sins. We stand condemned before God, unable to meet the standards of his righteousness. There's a curse of the law. It judges and it condemns us. But we read in Galatians 3 that Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. And if the curse is the withering reality of God forsakenness because of sin, Paul's saying that on the cross, Jesus experienced his own withering God forsakenness in those moments. As he hung there, becoming sin for us, he was completely without God. He who was one with the Father from all eternity. And the result is, we're told, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you believe that statement? But here's something really important. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not because, listen, not because God's love and goodness and kindness are pitted against his holiness and his justice, not because he's a God of love and not a God of wrath. There is no condemnation because the price has been paid. The gospel is not this vague, forgive, it sounds like I'm picking on a book, I'm not, I just, I just really, this vague sense of love wins. This really vague sense that God's just a God of love and at the end of the day it's all going to work. No, no, the gospel is that, you know, love, trump, love triumphs over justice or some sense. No, there is no condemnation for me. And there is no condemnation for you only if Jesus was condemned and you're in my place. That was the ransom price. 
and he paid it. Now let me ask you a couple things here, okay? As we come towards the end. <laughs> this is, as a kid in the Baptist church, they would say he went from preaching to meddling. Have you ever heard that? Preacher went from preaching to meddling. You got to like say not meddling, you got to say meddling. He went from preaching, as Connie Lear would say, preaching to meddling. Do you know how costly you are to love? Do you believe that you're hard to love? If not, ask your spouse. <laughs> ask your kids. <laughs> and the kids are hard to love too, aren't they, Steve? Yeah. Here's a hint. If you find it hard to stick with others when they become hard to love, you may have lost sight of how costly you are. And I can only speak for me because to do otherwise would be dangerous, but <laughs> I, I am so, I'm so, I mean, this, I'm sincere. This is sincere. I am so broken. I am so dysfunctional. I am such a pain to deal with that nothing short of the shed blood of the eternal son of God would do for me. Think about that. It took God's blood to fix me. And you should know that. If you're going to try to be my friend, <laughs> you better know that's what you're in for. And the more aware I am of how costly I am to love, the more willing I will be to stick with people when, when they prove costly to you. Do you see? So do you know? Do you know how costly you are? But secondly, do you know how valuable you are? Do you know how valuable you are? You measure the worth of something by the price someone is willing to pay for it, and God would pay with his own son's life for you. First Peter says gold and silver were not enough. They couldn't pay your ransom. All the treasure in the world could not buy you back. You're far too valuable for all of that. All the treasures in the world. Do you feel the weight of that? There's an old Puritan sermon entitled, the soul is worth more than all the world. And the doctrine in that sermon is this. Uh, in the death of Christ, we may read in large characters the worth of a soul. And that's why Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 to pay careful attention to the church because the church belongs to God and he obtained it with his own blood, Paul says. Do you know how valuable you are? You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to God, but so does the person you won't forgive. Jesus bought him too with his death and you won't forgive him? Jesus paid the ransom price for his sins and you would demand a payment for them? You are worth more to God than all the treasures of the world. He paid a high price for you but also for your neighbor. And so we should handle one another with care. But then lastly, do you see then how much God loves you? You measure the worth of something by what you're willing to give up in order to gain it? By the extent of the sacrifice you're willing to make to guard it and to keep it? I, you know, I love my computer. Uh, it's valuable to me. If someone stole it, it would, be, it would be a big deal. It's got stuff on there. You know, it would like be, I don't, I don't even know. It would be terrible. But if someone stole it, truth is, I'd, I'd gladly go and spend $1,000 to replace it. No big deal. But I'm not going to spend much more than that. 
But if one of my kids was sick or in danger, I'd empty the bank accounts. I'd refinance the house. I'd sell body parts. I'd do whatever I have to do to make sure they were okay. Because that's the way this works. God paid the highest price for you. He parted with his most prized possession to get you back. Don't you see? There was, there was no hesitation in Boaz in the text. He didn't care what the cost was. His love for Ruth was so great, he paid any, he'd pay any price. His love for her, however, is a faint reflection of your father's heart for you. You were costly. You were costly. Yet he gladly, not begrudgingly, paid the redemption price for you. Isn't that good news? That's why we should sing. That's why we should, we should joyfully meet one another's sins with forgiveness and kindness because of all that God has shown to us. But lastly then, and very quickly, the result of this, the what now? What now then? If that is truly the work that God has done for us in Christ and also the work he calls for us to do in redeeming one another, what now? And, and you see the very end of the text, the, the elders gathered at the city gate. This is just a great, I love it. This is the, the old men at McDonald's every morning when you go in there. They go there every day to get coffee and just sit around, although they talk about nonsense. These guys were there because the, all the leaders of the city would gather at the gate and they would make decisions. And so here are the elders at the city gate here. That they, it's, it's fascinating to me that they instinctively seem to know what a turning point uh, this was. They, and they begin to anticipate all of the good that will flow out of Boaz's sacrifice and generosity by pronouncing a blessing in verses 11 and 12. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, they say, who together built up the house of Israel. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, this blessing is more than just nice words. It is the recognition that God is at work. And what they do is they connect what Boaz is doing to what they see God doing. To say all of the loss, all of the pain, all of the hardship that Naomi and Ruth had, have had to endure would now be made up for. The elders recognize a certain pattern in the way God works. They call to mind first Rachel and Leah, who were barren women, we're told from the scripture we know. Until the Lord opened their womb, and then from his grace came the twelve sons who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. And then Perez, who was an ancestor of the Bethlehemites themselves, and so there was a certain lore surrounding him. And he, if you remember the story in, in Genesis also, he was the product of a Leverite marriage between Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who had to you know, dress like a prostitute and seduce him into the act because he was so unwilling to do that. And yet, from them came Perez. And, and they see this connection between the marriage of Boaz and Ruth here. They connect what was happening right in front of them with the way that God had worked for his people in the past, as if to say, I think this is really the essence of what they're saying here, it's just like God to do something like this. Think of all that came out of what he did in the past with Rachel and Leah and Perez. He's doing it again, right here, right now. And it causes us to wonder What's he going to do now? What's going to come of this? If, if such good came out of those things in the past, what is going to come of this? So they're anticipating. They're anticipating that God is really up to something and that something marvelous is going to come to pass for his people because of, because of what Boaz is doing here. And of course, we know that their instincts are correct because next week we'll see that Boaz and Ruth have a child. Now, Bible trivia, anybody know what the child's name is? Obed, who was the father of? Jesse, who was the father of David, who was the father of 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon, of course, but also the true king, the distant father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they couldn't possibly imagine what was really going on here because the magnitude of what would come from this simple act of faithfulness and love is staggering. I mean, the ripple effect that would become a tidal wave that would flood the whole earth with God's redeeming love. Now, what does all that mean for us? It means that the back end of redemption is blessing. Jesus redeemed us from the curse so that the blessing of Abraham might come to us, Galatians 3. I will bless you and make you a blessing, he said to Abraham. That's the blessing. But the blessing instead of curse doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that your life only looks like the last part of the book of Ruth and not like the first part. Be careful. It doesn't flatten out your life that way. Blessing means rather that you have been swept away by the river of God's redeeming love. Last summer, my family and I went to North Georgia and we, we like to go tubing down the river there, okay? And uh, it's, it's, it's a lazy person's dream because you don't have to do anything. You don't paddle. You just sit there, literally. They even, the tubes you're in even like have, you know, places where you can put a drink because, I mean, you know, you literally just sit there and roll down the river. And you let the river take you where you need to go. And I found myself in the middle of that, that, that journey, I just out of nowhere, singing that, the old hymn, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. And I think it was the words, Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. And it was just such, it's just such a picture for me that I've gone back to so many times this past year that the word blessed means that your life is caught up in the current of God's love and it has his love underneath you, all around you. It's, that, it's his love that's driving your life forward. No matter where you're headed, there's a current you're caught up in. And it's a current that's, that's flowing from the very heart of God for you. And so even when your life looks like the first two or three chapters of Ruth, you can anticipate what God has yet to do. You don't have to become bitter like Naomi did. You cannot lose heart. If your faith is in Jesus, God paid the ransom price for you. You belong to him, and so the Bible says his love is leading you onward, homeward. So sit back and let the current of his love do the work. Sure, there are rapids. But you know what I learned two or three times on that river, trying to float down it? I've learned that on the river, if you, decide, if you try to decide for yourself which way you need to go, that's when you get in real big trouble. <laughs> if you fur furiously paddle to get yourself to the spot your shore is best, that's when you end up not in your tube any longer. But watching it float down the river with you standing there on the rocks. Better to let the river take you where it wants to go. Do you see the analogy? So we've said that the word redeem is related to the idea of ransom. And also to the idea of forgiveness, one more synonym to round out the understanding, to redeem means to restore, to buy back. And that's what we see happening here at the end of Ruth's story. Everything that had been lost is going to be regained and more. Every tear sown is becoming joy reaped. That is the lesson of this book, and we'll look at it in more detail next week. That God's hesed love for us means no matter how dark the night, joy always comes in the morning. Now we're out of time. We're going to talk in detail next week about this. So spend the week anticipating Naomi and Ruth's joy. But don't forget as you do that to anticipate the good that God is working for you either. Because he's paid the ransom price for you. So Psalm 107 again says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let 
the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the table together this morning. Father, it is true. It is true that your, your love is like a mighty current pushing us along through our life, and yet we are those fools in the middle of the, of the river that would seek to paddle ourselves out of the very, the very current of salvation that you've provided for us, that we, we would take our lives into our own hands and, and, um, and just cause all kind of mess in the process. Forgive us. Forgive us the truth, the undeniable truth that we have to stare down this morning, and that is that we do not trust your love. Uh, we, we, do not, we do not live knowing the full cost to you of loving us. We think ourselves not too hard to love, not too costly in the end. You're really lucky to have us. In fact, you know, what would you do without us? And it just destroys, it destroys our gratitude, it destroys the, the, the way we think about other people that have, that have hurt us and that, that are hard to love in our own lives. Forgive us. Redeem this word, redeem to us this morning. Help us to see in it not only the death in your, of your son, the Lord Jesus, but, but, but the heart of the father behind his death, the willingness on the part of the father to pay the great cost of our sin in order to have us for himself. Oh, oh, Jesus, you didn't want heaven without us, as the song we sang a minute ago says. And so you willingly lay down your life for us, and now you call us in obedience to your commands to go and willingly lay down our lives for others. And so meet us at this table. Give us all the energy and the resources we need to do just that, that your name might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, amen. The great news of Christianity is uh, we don't just have a model or an example who said, now go and do that. Uh, but we have a, a model, an example, a redeemer who actually empowers us through Holy Spirit to go and redeem uh, in the same way we've been redeemed. So as you go, receive this benediction as a good word over you and another way in which he empowers you as you go from here on mission for him uh, to mimic, to imitate his way of loving you as you love others. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you, give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.